The story of Paul in Jerusalem continues. We left him last week after uh, being rescued, and now he's back before the Sanhedrin here. And looking intently, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and other, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the, of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him for, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are, ready, they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him to, by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he had commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, your word to us is a gift beyond comprehension, and we thank you for it. And we pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Uh, Do the work that only you can do. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week, the story in Acts is ramping up. That the, the tempo is picking up. Paul is in Jerusalem. And things have not gone very well for him so far. He was in the temple. He ends up being arrested. Uh, he tries to address the people. They want nothing of it. Uh, when he mentions the Gentiles, the crowd erupts in a rage. And they go after him and attack him and attempt to kill him. The Roman tribune intervenes and saves Paul from the crowd, but only to prepare him, binding him to have him flogged. It made sense to him. Uh, This guy is causing some upheaval. We'll figure out who he is. What better way to do that than flogging him? (laughs) So that's what he attempted to do. But he missed one minor detail. Paul was a Roman citizen. And laws protected him from being flogged. In fact, the law said that he couldn't even be bound unless he had been found guilty. And so it's interesting that at the end of chapter 22, we read that the tribune was afraid because he had bound Paul and attempted or almost flogged him. So it makes that letter that he wrote to Felix a little bit humorous because it sounded like he came in and saved the day when in fact he almost blew it. And had Paul not revealed, he would have gotten in big trouble. You see, his motivation primarily was civil peace. He was there to keep the peace. Just this was a, a, you know, under the Roman Empire, he was the military guy set to keep the peace, and that's all he wanted to do. He didn't want to get into the, the details of what they were arguing about, and he addressed that. He said, it's their law, it's nothing deserving of death or even imprisonment. And so, in his own wisdom, he decides to set Paul before their council. And he calls a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This was not a normal meeting. It was a called meeting. So it was rushed. It was hurried. In fact, the Sanhedrin probably would have resisted uh, this meeting had it not been for the fact that they just wanted a piece of Paul. They wouldn't have liked being told by a tribune, a Roman tribune, that they needed to meet. It's interesting that this was the same council, the Sanhedrin, where Stephen stood some 20 years before and preached his final sermon that led to him being stoned to death. So this hurried and forced meeting, plus all the turmoil from the day before, the beating of Paul, the explosion in the city from the the uproar, all of this sets the tone for what we see in Acts 23 today. And so beginning in verse 1, we see Paul looks intently at the council. Paul is in a serious state of mind. He is still bruised, bearing the pain from the beating from the day before. Paul had experienced great injustice, and I I would go so far to say that Paul experienced trauma. This was a traumatic event. 
And trauma, you know, we're learning more and more about this as the years go by, of the effects of trauma. I mean, you look at how we dealt with what was called shell shock in World War I and World War II, and what we deal with now, PTSD, in current war situations. We understand so much more about the effects of trauma, and particularly when it is prolonged. And Paul had experienced many things, as we saw through his missionary journeys, but these were particularly wounding. Because Paul went in, as he argued, he went in thinking, I'm one of these guys. They're going to accept me. I'm a Pharisee. You know, I persecuted the way. Yeah, I follow Christ now, but certainly they're going to at least listen to me. And so he picks up in his speech exactly where he left off. He doesn't re-explain anything. He just simply says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He had given the defense the day before. That was what he communicated. We, we looked at that last week. His apologia, his apologetic, he defended the faith. He explained his commitment to the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee, trained under Gamaliel. He explained his commitment to the temple. It's where he went to pray. He explained his previous commitment to the purity of Judaism, that he persecuted the way. He explained his commitment to Jesus as Messiah, telling of his own confrontation by Jesus and the subsequent affirmation by Ananias when he got to Damascus. He explained his commitment to the mission God had given him to go to the Gentiles. And it was that point that the crowd erupted. They did not want to hear about the Gentiles. And so it's that statement that he ended with the day before that he now comes and says, here I stand before you. My conscience is bound. I can't help but think of Martin Luther, some 1,500 years later, who had a similar statement. I never realized how similar they were until I was looking at it this week and then we went and reread Luther's statement before the Diet of Worms. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture, this is Luther, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Like Luther would later, Paul made his statement and his conscience was bound. He stood by his defense of the gospel, his, by his personal conviction to the truth of the gospel, and his life backed it up. Paul had given everything. He had preached only Christ and him crucified and risen. He had suffered for the gospel. God had worked miracles through him to affirm who he was, that he was his messenger, and this is where Paul stood. And it was to this statement that Ananias, the high priest, ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. And Paul reacted by lashing out, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul's statement was true. (laughs) Uh, What Ananias did was wrong, but Paul um, didn't handle himself in the right way. I mean, Ananias was a whitewashed wall. Now, Jesus used that terminology in talking about uh, uh, vases, a whitewashed vase or an empty vase, still having the perfume in it but being empty. Uh, He also used that same phrase. It comes from Ezekiel. And the idea is, Before selling a piece of property, if you had a wall that was cracking, you just covered it with a bunch of paint to fill in all the cracks so it looked like it was sound. But inside it really wasn't. 
and a little rain and a little bit of a storm and the wall would come crashing down. And of course, this is what would happen to Ananias because he was a wicked man. He was a wicked high priest. He was more interested in power and money than in the glory of God. Over history, he had ordered his servants to steal the tithes from the priests. He had bribed both the Romans and Jews. He played both sides, a true politician. It's interesting, the Talmud even records a parody of him from Psalm 24-7, which says, lift up your gates, or lift up your heads, O ye gates, that Ananias may go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices. So even the local comics were having some fun with him. He used violence and assassinations to help his own cause. His pro-Roman policy set him at odds with the Judean nationals, and eventually when war broke out, his friends took him out and assassinated him. He was a whitewashed wall. But even though he was evil, Paul responded to the rebuke in the incorrect way. He lashed out. And when he was challenged on it, he corrected himself. He quoted the law, said you're not supposed to speak against God's anointed, so to say, and in a sense apologized. Um, Paul was wrong, corrected himself, got back on track. I think that's in itself a lesson to us. Um, Luke doesn't explain why Paul didn't know he was the high priest. It's interesting when you look at that. Why did Paul not know he was the high priest? Paul had been gone now for 20 years. Um, He probably would have known who Ananias was, but there's a lot of speculation, and we can only guess. Um, One, the, the meeting was called. It was a rushed meeting. Ananias probably didn't have his normal garb on. The high priest would have worn a, you know, a elaborate robe that would have set him apart from the rest of the council, so he probably didn't have that on. Uh, Paul's vision may have been impaired by the beating that he had received the day before. There's other illusions in history that Paul had trouble with his eyesight. So there's a number of things that we can speculate. We don't know why. Luke doesn't tell us. But regardless of the reasons, Paul responds uh, by correcting himself, repenting, turning from what he had done. Uh, Again, I think that's a lesson to us all. It's something we can all identify with. I mean, Probably all of us have lashed out maybe once or twice. We've said something, maybe we've said the truth, but we've said it in the wrong way. Uh, We've said it at the inappropriate time, been disrespectful. Um, Or we've said something that's just clearly wrong. And this example for us is that we should quickly turn, be quick to repent. That's a work that only the gospel can do in our lives, for us to, to be able to repent when we sin. Because our pride... At least this is true for me. Um, even when I sin, my pride doubles down. Uh, I don't want to admit that I was just wrong, that I just blew it. And so it's only the work of the gospel that can move us to turn and repent. Now, we've seen Paul speak with intelligence. We've seen him speak with winsomeness, with great conviction. Now we see Paul speak with shrewdness. Paul isn't simply trying to manipulate the council. Yet, while he wasn't omniscient of the outcome, he did know the differences between scribes and Pharisees. It reminds me this scene of a scene from the opening of Fiddler on the Roof. And yes, I may have to turn in my man card that I just admitted I know a scene from a musical, but it is one of my favorite movies. And Tevi is introducing you to the, the village. And he comes across and says, you know, we, the village is in the background. We, we live at peace with each other. He said, but there was this one time that this one man sold a horse to the other man and told him it was only six years old, but it was really 12 years old. And then Tevia turns around and walks back to the man and says, it was really 12 years old. 
And the man erupts in anger, and the other man erupts arguing against him, and they go back and forth. That's exactly what I can imagine this scene looked like when Paul lobbed this grenade of the resurrection into the crowd because what happens was he said this one statement, and they went at each other. The Pharisees did, not, or did believe in the resurrection of the dead and in the spirit world. The Sadducees did not. All Paul had to do was say something about it. It wasn't to be manipulative, but it was because it was true that Paul was indeed on trial because of the resurrection. He says in verse 6, with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. But it wasn't simply his belief in that, or every Pharisee would have been on trial. But it was specifically the resurrection of Jesus that was at center stage. Because it was the resurrection of Jesus that affirmed he was the Messiah who Paul claimed. But all it took again was mentioning this in verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And Luke then adds the reasoning for this. Now, because Paul is a Pharisee, the Pharisees, in a very political response or politically motivated response, um, turn and support him. Um, They say, what if an angel spoke to him? And, of course, this only leads to more um, dissension. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, if that doesn't paint a picture for how violent this became commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so Paul now is back in a protective custody, so to speak. And I can't help but wonder, what was Paul thinking at this point? Now, why did I come to Jerusalem? Why didn't I listen to all those people who said not to come to Jerusalem? You know, was that the Holy Spirit or was that indigestion? You know, just what, what, what really was going on there? Did I really, am I really following the leading of the Lord or was this all just one big mistake? And why didn't God give me favor? Why didn't he allow me to be heard before the people? Why did they shut me down? Why did they attack me? Why did they beat me? I normally don't like to guess what's not in Scripture. We don't know what Paul was thinking. But at this point, I think it is good to imagine a little bit what Paul was thinking because it helps, it, it helps us to identify with it. At least, I can say I don't know what Paul was thinking, but I know what I would have been thinking. And those are the questions that I find myself asking when life comes apart, when things don't go as I planned or as I'd hoped, when... Things happen, and we feel the weight of the brokenness of the world. And this is where we see the gospel at work. Because the gospel is not just a far-off hope. It is that, but the promise of the gospel is also right here and now. Because the promise of the gospel is Jesus himself. And that's what we see take place in verse 11. Jesus actually visits Paul And says to him, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. Wouldn't we all love to have this experience? To have Jesus come and comfort us personally. But the glory in the verse is not the message that he told him the future. I would love for Jesus to come and tell me what's going to happen, like he did Paul. But the glory is the presence of Jesus himself. 
And it's his presence that gives us courage in the midst of life's difficulties. But before we get too jealous of Paul, let me remind you of something Jesus told his disciples. In John 20, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed. Better off are those who have not seen and have believed. You're better off having not seen and believed. That's hard to believe. (laughs) We want to see. We want so badly to see. But this is one of the glorious mysteries of Christianity that is a walk by faith. And God's promise is not simply heaven and the afterlife. It is that. It's not a promise of a comfortable life now. It's not a promise of perfect health or material abundance or prosperity in our efforts. But His promise to us is Himself. And the question for us today is this. Is He enough? Is Jesus enough? Can we say with the psalmist, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Are we willing to trust God, a God that we cannot see and wait on His timing trusting His goodness. Some of you today have things on your plate right now that are weighing you down like a ton of bricks and you have been waiting and waiting and waiting and you were saying, Lord, where are you? Listen to the words of Isaiah. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, unsearchable, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. As Paul waited, Jesus strengthened him and encouraged him because he still had a hard road ahead. In fact, another two years before he would even make it to Rome. But hear me say this to you today. Jesus is an ever-present help in time of trouble, and he will never leave or forsake you. So take courage. He is enough. Well, Paul's troubles were far from over. He doesn't know it yet as he waits in the barracks, but a plot has been conspired by some 40 men who have pledged not to eat or to drink until they have killed him. I mean, if that doesn't reveal what was in their hearts, I don't know what will. To add to this, the council conspires with these men to call Paul, order the tribune to bring him to be out so they can set him up to be killed. But Paul's nephew hears about the ambush we see in verse 16. And we all say, what? Paul's nephew? (laughs) We didn't even know Paul had a sister, let alone a nephew. And in Jerusalem, you know, we don't know. That was, this is, Luke just kind of lobs this one right in there and doesn't give us any more details. Um, we know from the text and the way that he's described that he's a young boy. He's not old, probably a, a young teenager, but most likely even younger. And yet God orchestrated the events so that a young boy is the tool that thwarts the plans of the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And so... The tribune orders that Paul be sent immediately. That night, we're going to 
load them up. And what do we do? Nearly 600 armed men. I mean, if that's not overkill, I don't know what is. To take Paul safely out of Jerusalem uh, all the way to Caesarea. Um, Lysias is the tribune's name. This now He's been called the tribune up to this point, but here we're given his name. He writes this letter, and as I mentioned before, it is a little uh, humorous, the way he writes the letter after what actually happened. He mentions nothing about binding Paul and nearly flogging him, and instead he tells how he rescued Paul from death when he learned that he was a Roman citizen. And well, that was true. He did rescue Paul from being torn to pieces. It wasn't that he rescued Paul when he learned that he was a Roman citizen. So Paul is taken uh, through Antipatris to Caesarea. Herod's built a, a, a palace there. Uh, the ruins are still there to this day. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, they uncover more and more at this place. It's a beautiful place. And you can go and stand where Paul would have stood. Um, they have that part of the, where he would have been heard, marked out. And the Mediterranean Sea is right there um, as you're looking out. And this is where Paul is as he awaits the next step of the adventure. And what that would be is that Ananias and members of the Jerusalem or the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, would come and present their case before him. And Felix has agreed now to hear the case, the accusations brought before Paul, and to hear Paul's defense. And that's what we'll look at. Two overarching themes that I want you to leave with today. This is what I want us to leave thinking about. One, God is at work in us, and God is with us. We have seen in Acts throughout, particularly in the life of Paul, how God has been at work in Paul's life. And I don't mean that God has been at work in Paul's life to use him, although he certainly has. He's been at work through him, but he's also been at work in him, changing him, sharpening him, molding him, conforming him into the image of his son, making Paul Christ-like. And in the same way, God is at work within you. Yes, he's using you for his kingdom, but he is also at work within you, teaching you, showing you, changing you, conforming you to the image of His Son. And He's doing it all with love. And this is where you have to come back to the truth. Sometimes my kids get offended by, the, by what I do and the way I do it. And because I'm a big sinner, they probably should get offended some of the time. But some of the time, I'm actually doing something that's motivated in love, that's for their best, that they don't understand. And so occasionally I will ask them, do you, do you know that I love you? Yeah, that question should change everything. It does change everything. And that's what I'm saying to you today, is that God loves you. And whatever He is leading you through, He is with you, and He is at work in you, and He loves you. Listen to what Moses wrote about Jacob in Deuteronomy. He, the Lord, found Jacob in a desert land, And in the howling waste of the wilderness, does that connect with any of you? The howling, have any of you ever been in the howling waste of the wilderness? He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. You may feel like your world is haywire, going haywire, falling apart. But I want you to remember today that God is at work in you and He loves you and that changes everything. You are indeed the apple of His eye. And God is not only at work within us, He is with us. 
This is a tremendous comfort for Paul as it is for us as well. He's promised never to leave or forsake us. He's promised to finish the work that he started in us. And so when disappointments come, and they will, and when the joy fades, and it will, when you question why, come back to the promises that he's given you. Come back to his character, who he is, because he will not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And hear these words of comfort from Isaiah. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like the grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. God is with you, saying to you today, you are mine. You are the apple of my eye. Nothing can separate you from my love. You are mine. Let's pray. Lord, may we know today the height and breadth and depth and length of the all-surpassing love that is yours toward us in Christ. May we know that we are yours. And I pray that specifically for the ones who are hanging on by their fingernails today to this truth. Because of life's circumstances, because of things that have happened to them, maybe things that they've done, whatever the case, Lord, would you speak to them today through your word that they would hear you saying, you are mine. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will finish the work that I've started. I reign in the heavens over all things. Nothing can thwart my plans. Lord, comfort us with the truth. Root us deeply in it so that we may, at the end, stand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.